0: Hi, I'm Don Braid. Welcome to uh, the latest edition of Inside Alberta, a podcast with Chris Varco, our business uh, political columnist. We've got lots to talk about this week. Election. We're now within a formal election period. Uh, not exactly the election campaign and uh, we got a very big Supreme Court ruling on orphan wells we got curtailment blues we have uh, Jason Kennedy making a very peculiar call for uh, easing mortgage rules in Calgary and Edmonton and wherever uh, and then, finally, um, there's implications from a B.C. B- election. So lots to talk about. And, uh, uh, Chris, uh, maybe we can start with uh, some things that started happening on social media uh, the last day of January, which was people suddenly talking about an election in Alberta because Deb Drever, the, the uh Formerly infamous uh, MLA from Calgary Bow uh, mentioned kickoff when she was having a big political thing, big rally, and, and it was taken to mean the election campaign is suddenly starting. Well, there was some reason for that speculation because uh, February 1st is actually the first day of the formal uh, uh, campaign period as opposed to the uh, the election period as opposed to campaign period, the laws are, but, but it's the first day on which the government could call an election, uh, February the 1st. And well, will they? Um, will they call really early, like an election for the beginning of March? Th- that seemed to be the
1: issue. What do you think about this, Chris? I think we're in the red zone, Don, and everybody's yeah. got their antennas up and they're all waiting for the call. But I don't think it makes a lot of sense that they would call the election this quickly as, as you and me have have discussed over the last 24 hours. We still got the, the ledge session and a yeah. throne speech coming um, next month. And the NDP are far behind still in terms of nominating candidates. So well, why, exactly, the, the NDP you do it
0: exactly. The NDP, according to the uh, local CUPE local, they've got forty-six candidates. Support, according to their own party website, they have thirty-eight candidates. They're supposed to be eighty-seven candidates. Um, and they, the, there's lots of problems with it, and I don't think they're going to do it. And I did talk to a couple of NDP sources, are fairly senior, who said, uh, "No, the election is not going to be called right away." Yes, they will deliver that throne speech on march the 18th the more more likely scenario still seems to be they'll deliver their own speech and then perhaps go to the lieutenant governor drop the writ without a budget because it seems more and more unlikely. So I don't think the scenario has changed, but there's bound to be a, more, a lot of talk uh, now that uh, we're into this sort of quasi-formal period. And meanwhile, the spending is just going on like crazy. The government is putting up lots of ads that the government of Alberta is still paying for, right? Yeah. And, and they look like political ads to me. Uh, the UCP has got all kinds of ads going up under its own banner. They've got all kinds of money to do that. The strong that. So, and the
1: free ads are on TV yeah, all the time. You, right. can't, you can't
0: miss them. Can't watch a hockey game without seeing those ads. Uh, and then we have this really, really major Supreme Court ruling this week on orphan wells. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah. Well, I think there's actually two or three really interesting things have gone on in the, in the world of energy in the last week. And one of them is the Supreme Court ruling that has to do with the way that orphan wells, these are basically inactive oil and gas wells that have no owner who has to pay to clean them up. So what had happened was uh, lower court rulings here in Alberta had said that in the case of a company called Redwater Energy that the trustee uh, only wanted to take over the good wells, the active wells, the profitable wells from this company and sell them out and use the money to pay down uh, the secured creditors that, that were owed money. And then disavow or disallow having to take over uh, a bunch of bad wells, which are sitting on the landscape and need to be cleaned up, and basically toss them over to the Orphan Well Association, an industry group which pays for and picks up the tab on these orphan wells. Uh, The Supreme Court came back and said, no, no, we disagree. We think that the provincial environmental laws, in this case, trump the concerns over the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. Because that really was what it was at play as a tension between the Bankruptcy Act, which federal legislation, and provincial environmental regulations. And the court said that the trustee, in this case, has to live up to the provincial regulations. The Alberta energy regulator was the one who had appealed this to the Supreme Court, along with the, Associa- the Orphan Well Association. I think that's really good news for Alberta.
0: I do too. I think it's good news reputationally as well as practically. It, everybody is concerned about orphan wells. Have been for years. Uh, it's always been really difficult to get a grip on. Now the Supreme Court, and I'm pleased to see in national coverage of this, that that uh, national media were not sort of saying finally Alberta gets its comeuppance because the government has tried to deal with this, as you explained to me earlier. The regulator was on the side of dealing with yep. the environmental issue. So it's the law that's been preventing it to some degree. I mean, I mean, you could look back over the long record and say the government hasn't done very well. But but really, it's being taken nationally that the Supreme Court has brought good news to Alberta that Albertans agree with. I think almost everybody agrees, right? Yeah,
1: I think what's really interesting is that the producers themselves, through the like the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, have said they wanted to see this is well appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, and there's a reason Mm -hmm. for that, is that the Orphan Well Association is an independent, industry-funded group. It's a levy upon producers. They have to contribute money to clean up wells when there's no oil and gas companies remaining, as in this case, to Mm -hmm. pick up the tab. And those numbers of orphan wells have been growing almost exponentially since the oil price downturn five years ago. So they're the ones that have to pay the tab. They don't want to see a bunch of wells tossed into their lap, so that's positive. But I'm not going to give the government too much credit here, and here's the reason why. We're talking about orphan wells, and there's maybe 3,000 of those across the landscape here in this province. There are also 89,000 wells that are inactive. They're basically suspended. There are companies in place to pick up the bill, but there's no actual hard timeline on how long they can leave a well sitting in suspension for. Uh, So we've got wells in this province that have been sitting in suspension for six decades. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you, if oil prices going to $100 a barrel wasn't enough to kickstart them, uh, and if oil falling into single digits, you know, back in the 1998-99 period, wasn't enough to make them shut them in, then they're clearly not doing anything with them. And the government's got to bring some legislation and deal with that.
0: That, That's really interesting. And the victims are, everybody talks about the environment, the big, big environment environment there. Uh, and really, the victims on the ground are the farmers who had these wells, in some cases, forced on their land in the first place. And then uh, and then all of a sudden, the company goes bankrupt, and they got to deal with the rest, and they're not getting any lease money anymore. Exactly. So, so uh, anyway, it's good to see that that, that uh, ruling came down. Thanks for that explanation. That's complicated. You made it very clear. Uh, then there's a the curtailment easement problem. <laughs> you know, we have, are we going to stop shipping oil to BC? Are we going to curtail protection here? It gets kind of confusing, and, and uh, curtailment, of course, is cutting production to run-up price. Maybe you could give us a little briefing on the curtailment and easement.
1: Right, so a couple of developments on the curtailment front. We were in the first month of voluntarily shutting in production in this province of about 325,000 barrels a day to try and uh, match up supply production with takeaway capacity. And so far, it's had the effect of bringing down the price discount on Canadian crude sharply. That's the good news. Uh, the government said, in fact, that the storage levels of oil, this is the amount of oil that's sitting, you know, basically in any place, in any tanks that, the, you know, companies can store it, is falling as well faster than expected down about 15 percent in the first month of the year that is also very positive but there's been some uh, some rough patches as well and we saw that today with imperial oil the largest refiner in the country came out and said there's unintended consequences coming from curtailment now they're a refiner they don't like this idea of curtailment because they think it it basically manipulates the market in terms of trying to push up the price but it also means that they have to pay more for their feedstocks. It hurts their downstream earnings. So there's a reason obviously why they're not in favor. But here's where they say the two unintended consequences are. Number one is because the discount has fallen so sharply in the last few weeks, less oil is going to move by rail from say the Hardesty area all the way down to the Gulf Coast because the economics don't allow for it anymore. So it costs about 15 or $20 to move a barrel from Hardesty down to say Port Arthur, Texas to get refined but if the differential is only six seven eight dollars a barrel there's no incentive for you to, to move it down there so this could have the unintended consequence of them moving less oil by rail that's not a good thing and they're saying that their numbers are falling sharply and are gonna fall even more sharply in February and March if this trend continues. So that's one Excuse issue.
0: Excuse me. Are you telling me that we've done all this in order to drive up prices and now prices have gone up so far we can't sell the oil?
1: Well, we're not saying they can't sell the oil, but we're <laughs> saying there's no incentive There's no incentive to move it by rail oh, if yeah. this continues. So yeah. that's not good news because we need the rail capacity in place for the next 12 months until Embridge's Line Three replacement project comes so the, online, so the
0: government is spending all this money on rail cars, like what is it, a billion and a half or something on rail cars, and and it's not it's not needed or or well what th- the the, <laughs> r- the rail cars are
1: going to take you know six months yeah. to a year to come online. So yeah. we're talking about short term ramifications, but I but I think what's important to point out here, and this is what Rich Kruger from Imperial said, which is, it's not as simple as turning the dial and getting a re- direct response. OPEC has faced this issue for decades, which is, if it was just as simple as saying, crank down production by 10% everybody, and the price goes up by 50%, then they'd be doing it with success all the time. But this is a free market, there are unintended consequences. And here's the second unintended consequence that might happen. Imperial is uh, one of the few companies which is moving forward on a major oil sands project, the Aspen project, I believe it's $2 billion. And they're saying they're going to have to look at the economics and look at the marketplace and the conditions given curtailment. They're not saying they're going to cancel, but if I were Rachel Notley and the premier, I'd be getting on the phone and wondering what exactly does curtailment mean for that project moving ahead. Yikes. Yes. Can you
0: imagine what would happen in the election campaign if if she's talking about how curtailment has worked and all of a sudden Imperial says we're going out, and you said, uh, told me earlier they, they might go to an American uh, heavy oil play instead? Is that what you're suggesting?
1: Well, what I'm suggesting here is is that they might not move forward with the project as quickly as planned. They want to see certainty. That's what investors want at the end of the day, and uh, it's their money. But here's the other little twist on, and you and I both know this, (laughs) Jason Kenney and the Alberta Party as well with Stephen Mandel also back curtailment. So it's not like there's a huge political advantage or disadvantage for any of the three parties right now because they're all in alignment that they support curtailment to protect the value of these barrels for Albertans. But that doesn't mean you're not going to have companies making noise.
0: So speaking of Kenny, yes. uh, he, uh, you were at the event the other day, I believe, when Kenny called on the federal government to uh, not impose the new stress test for mortgages in cal- places like Calgary, where our housing market is in difficulty, because it's intended mostly for Toronto and Vancouver. Uh, which is true. and it. But it's part of this this thing you notice with Kenny. He, If there's a federal regulation that Albertans don't like um, and it's helping people elsewhere, he will mount a challenge. And equalization is the classic example. Right. Uh, you know, I think we probably, if he wins, we're going to see a, a referendum on equalization in Alberta. And this is the same kind of thing. He's saying that the, the this kind of federal law doesn't help Alberta. In fact, in this context, it hurts Alberta. It, politically, it, these things are winners. But I, I just just don't see and, and I've actually had people from the Prime Minister's office suggest to me that he's wrong that the the this the, this would actually kill the housing market in Calgary because people with uh, would borrow money they, they really shouldn't borrow and they buy a house that's too expensive, and then the whole market will collapse. That that sounds goofy to me too. What's your business columnist
1: slash
0: <laughs> professional whatever? Well, I'm not a professional <laughs> real estate agent nor market, <laughs> market
1: watcher in that sense, but let, let me give you my, my read on it, which is, this is easy politics. The, the politics is, you know, much like if you were saying that the in the central bank should have lower interest rates uh, in Alberta or in Western Canada, uh, but, beca- but they're going up to try and cool inflation in the rest of the country, it's hurting us. This is the same kind of argument, which is the stress test rules are hurting. Hurting Alberta, they're hurting Western Canada, and they're really designed to cool down these super hot markets. Mm-hmm. But would you really? Is the CMHC and the federal government really going to put in place a patchwork quilt of rules for lending rules that are that are put out by CMHC? Uh, I doubt it. I mean, is it possible? Well, I guess we have regional employment insurance rules, so mm-hmm. anything is possible. Is it likely? No. Does mm-hmm. does the Alberta government have any leverage here? Not really. So all Kenny was saying is that they would pass a motion and call on this. Um, You know, maybe it makes sense. Ain't going to happen. Well, speaking
0: of patchwork taxation, that that brings us to our beloved British Columbia, which of course has this fascinating speculation tax. Like if you're from Alberta and you own something, you got to prove that. And there was a by-election in Nanaimo this week. And interestingly enough, every single taxpayer in Nanaimo got a notice uh, in the mail or by electronically from the provincial government saying you have to fill out a declaration explaining why you don't have to pay a speculation tax. Honest, that's true. Mm-hmm. And that coming right in the middle of the election, the by-election campaign in Nanaimo, which looked absolutely, was absolutely crucial because had the NDP lost, uh, they might not have been the government uh, a month from now. Um, and because the, the liberals have actually got more seats than them now, and they would have had one more, and then that would have right. tipped, tipped the balance there. So, but but they won anyway. They they promised a couple of hospital kinds of things <laughs> during the campaign. It's an NDP stronghold. They won anyway. So, uh, life goes on in BC with uh, with Horrigan continuing to press his case that they don't have to. They can regulate the shipment of bitumen and everything. Uh, well, some of us got pretty excited about the prospect that they might not win that by election. But, but what they, does this going on? What, is,
1: what does it mean now that they've won? Does it mean anything for Alberta and for Rachel Notley in your, your mind?
0: No, I don't I don't think it means anything different. I think if had there been – you know, imagine the funny position for Notley. Had the Liberals won, then they would have been in a position of having to cheer for an non ndp government to win even <laughs> though – I mean they're not supposed to do that even though they clearly don't like Horgan and his government. So I doubt if you would have heard Rachel jumping up and down applauding, although privately they probably would have because the Liberals – Were they suddenly to find themselves in power, and it could happen, uh, you know, because this this fragile, the coalition is so fragile, uh, were they finally, they they would be back to their original position. One expects that their conditions for the pipeline have been met, with the exception of the court case. That has to be resolved, and then they will go to that. But dream exploded. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I guess that's it for uh, Inside Alberta for this week, and we'll be back next week with uh, more hilarity.